Please open your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 7. We're continuing our journey through Judges. Today, the title of the sermon is Gideon's 300 Men, part 2. So we're continuing on in Judges, chapter 7, and I'm specifically focusing on verses 16 and 22 um, today. So I want you to consider that there was a time once when the world was in the grip of a dark and evil force. Yes, believe it or not, there was such a time. And there is such a time now. And there will be such a time in the future until our Lord Jesus returns. This is the state of the fallen world. This is is the sinful nature of of our existence at this point in time. And it's something that I want us to recognize. And I, and I speak of it, I think, often because we can get caught up in what we're experiencing in the moment and we think that we're the only ones to experience evil and darkness. And yes, you know, I, I readily acknowledge, and I think we all do, that we today do face evil. We, fee, we, we face incredible evil. Um, And sometimes it's just astounding when we read of what's going on, when we hear of what's going on. And it seems, honestly, that that the darkness is now coming out of the shadows where it was once hidden, that it seems to be more visible to us. And yes, it does seem to have increased in its power and even in the number of evil things. It seems that way. And I'm not saying that it's not. But what I want to say is that it's important that we maintain a biblical perspective as our viewpoint when we deal with with our lives as Christians, as followers of Christ. So this message of perspective is an important one. Um, It's one I wish to always reinforce in my message to you. I see in my own family the worry and anxiety that comes from the events that are happening around us. So I understand if you're feeling that. I think many of us are. So my goal has been and is today and will always remain to turn our focus to God and his sovereignty. That God alone is omnipotent and omniscient. And that it is God's decrees that set the course of human history, which incorporates each and every event, no matter how seemingly small to us. My goal is to turn our focus to Christ and his cross, to the victory that has already been won. My goal is to turn our focus to how we should then live in the light of God's truth and in the light of Christ's victory. In this battle between good and evil, which seems to be ramping up, think about this. Satan And the fallen angels do not grow in number. Their ranks 
do not and never will expand. They are, in a sense, in a steady state until they are ultimately consigned to the lake of fire for eternity. And even though every human being, each of us, is born into a fallen state, we, who are the elect of God, have been plucked out of the ranks that align with Satan and the fallen angels. And we've been placed in ranks amongst the heavenly host. Those ranks expand. It is our destiny, it is our blessing, it is the gift of God to us that we, once sinners, have become sons of God. And I mean this in the Old Testament term of inheritance, not not restricting it to just males, but the one who is inheriting the blessings. As sons of God, human sons of God, it is our destiny to take our place amongst the ranks of the heavenly sons of God, the holy angels, the heavenly host. When you think about that, those ranks expanding, with each of us adding to it, and Satan being stuck with what he has. There's hope in that. That's something that's that's positive. We we can we can we can wrap our minds around size, so hopefully that's helpful. In this balance, if you will, for lack of a of a better term, of good and evil, is is set by and maintained by God, in accordance with things known only amongst the Trinity. We are not privy to the secret things of God that are known only to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So thus, this this balance, let's just call it that, never becomes skewed or, or, or out of balance or lopsided, regardless of how it may appear to us in our present state. Now, there are great events in history when people accomplish feats for which they are admired, Events that are told and retold and memorialized in our history and in our culture. But really, think about it. We find even more astonishing events recorded in the Bible, don't we? But I ask myself, why, why do we, why do I seem to approach these, these grand events recorded in the Bible with a lackadaisical attitude? You know, we know the stories, they're there, and... We accept them, but there's not that impact of like, oh my, my goodness, this is just astounding. And I wondered about that. Is it because of familiarity? You know, are we so familiar with it, it's lost its impact? Um, what does this attitude really reveal in us? Do we think that God no longer works in remarkable ways, that this is just something that happened once upon a time? and that we are stuck in this age that's just completely mechanistic until the Lord returns and rescues us from this this scientific, naturalistic, evolutionary 
uh, thing that, that everyone tells us we're in? Have these stories become old and dry to us? Or is it, I wonder, that we silently struggle with unbelief and lack of trust? And if that's the case, and I think each of us inside must admit that there is a certain amount of that at times. We all encounter at least a grain of unbelief, at least a bit of lack of trust in God. That's, that's, that's our fallen nature. And maybe if we recognize that and realize that, yes, that can happen to us, it does happen, and God will take us through those periods, it will help us. But these feats of God that we read about in, the, in our scriptures, we compare those to feats of men. How easy it is for us to glorify men, and yet how hard it is, how difficult it is for us to glorify God. We must understand that glorifying God is not our natural disposition as fallen human beings. Our natural disposition is to glorify ourselves and to glorify other image bearers of God and set God outside of that equation. Yeah, I'd say we're overflowing with the sinful inclination to glorify men. Just look at our culture. Look at the celebrities in our culture. Besides the celebrities, there are others who really, when, I, when you think about it, they are nothing more than celebrities, which would be athletes, professional athletes, politicians, yes, and even religious leaders. We can set them up as celebrities and idols, even good godly men, good preachers, good pastors, can be made into idols by others. And we must guard ourselves against that. It's so easy to slip into. So what do we do with these sinful inclinations? Well, number one, we need to recognize that God is sovereign even over these sinful inclinations. Not that he's the author of them, no. Rather, our behavior is a factor in and part of his decree regarding human history. How can that be, you might ask? Well, that's part of the topic that I want to talk about in this part of the book of Judges with Gideon, and it's concerning deception and how we view deception. Deception bad, deception good. Can it be a positive? Deception, we, we often are deceived. We can be self-deceived. We're deceived by others. It's hurtful when we're deceived. How does God use deception? God created us as image bearers with marvelous minds. And these minds of ours are powerful tools, but they can also be weapons. They can be, there can be, we, they can be weapons that we use against ourselves, our own minds against ourselves. And, as I said, we can be unwitting instruments of deception. And we see this 
not only in the biblical account that we're going to look at today, but we see it in modern history. And after I wrote this and some of the recent findings that have come out in the news about certain things, I was tempted, very tempted, to change what I was going to talk about with deception because I was seeing massive examples of deception that we're going through. But I refrained from that because I was afraid I would get on a rabbit trail, which you can see I'm getting on it right now, so we're going to stop right there. In the dark days of the fourth decade of the 20th century, after the death of Christ, a century called the bloodiest in human history, so far, an evil power, Nazi Germany, arose in Europe and quickly, quickly conquered the continent of Europe. In a matter of just weeks, Germany defeated the French army, the British army, and the Belgian army. The British army was trapped against the coast, the northern coast of England. It looked like it was going to be captured or destroyed. This was virtually every single professional soldier in the British army was at risk of being lost. The French simply laid down their arms. France France had suffered such a horrendous loss in the First World War that they had no spirit left to fight. They had lost so many men of the previous generation that they just did not have the stomach. And France had the largest standing army in Europe at the time. They far outnumbered the Germans. In fact, when Germany decided to engage in war, the German generals were opposed to it. They weren't ready, and they were, they were going to put on the brakes as soon as the British or the French showed any resistance. But they did not. The Germans rolled right over them. Well, by the grace of God, Britain was able to evacuate its troops from the beaches of Dunkirk, but they lost all of their, virtually all of their, their fighting material, all of their weapons, all of their rifles. The men came off the beaches with basically nothing. The army had to be rebuilt from scratch. This was in 1940. Europe became what was called Fortress Europe. The Nazis turned it into something that seemed to be impregnable. Now fast forward four years later, the United States has come into the war. Germany knows that the Allies, that being the British and the Americans and some free French forces, were going at some point to invade Fortress Europe. The question was, where were they going to invade? Well, we tried all these um, you know, tricks to make them think we were going to come in you know, through maybe uh, the Balkans or up through Italy or whatever. But it was very easy to tell that massive forces were being gathered in England. Germany saw that. They knew the invasion was going to come across the English Channel. The only question was where. Where should they mass their forces to repel this invasion? Well, the German high command, these were professional soldiers, some of the best on earth. They thought the invasion will come in Normandy. And they were correct. 
they would have been ready. And there's a great doubt as to whether our troops would have gotten a foothold on the sands of those beaches. Deception was needed. There was another invasion point that was possible, and that was Calais. That was the closest point geographically between France, between Europe, and England. So that made sense. A massive army was placed in East Anglia off the coast of Calais. But it was a ghost army. It wasn't real. Its material, its, its Sherman tanks were inflatable. They, there, was, there, was, there were headquarters tents. There, was, there were installations built that were all fake. None of it was real. They simulated, the Americans simulated massive amount of radio traffic that the Germans could understand amongst made-up military units, corps, divisions, battalions that were only on paper. The Germans are listening to this. They're going, they're gathering, they're gathering at Calais. And then the most feared general of the United States Army is assigned to this massive invasion force in East Anglia. General, Major General George S. Patton, Jr., Virtually the only general that the Nazis feared. The only combat general that they did not want to meet on a field of battle. He's put in charge. They're like, this is it. Patton's coming across. He's going to hit at Calais. Thing is, is, Patton really wasn't in charge of any army at the time. He'd been relieved of command for harsh treatment of soldiers suffering what was then called combat fatigue. Now, German officers of Prussian heritage could not imagine a general officer being relieved of duty for harsh treatment of a private. That didn't make sense. That doesn't happen. This, they were certain, was a deception. They're trying to make us think that Patton is out of the game. When really, he's getting ready. He's going to hit us from Calais. All of their, their troops in Normandy were shifted up to Calais. And of course, as you know, we invaded in Normandy and the Germans weren't prepared. That example I give you is taken almost perfectly from the book of Judges. The Allies copied what Gideon did and what we're going to look at today. So deception, we can see in those dark days of World War II, deception was used for a good thing. And we're going to see that in the pages of our Bible today, that, that God does use deception in this way that is, is a bit unusual for us to consider. So we're going to cover, like I said, verses 15 through 25. I'm going to take it a bit at a time. Even though we're starting at 16, I want to, I want to uh, start at 15, a verse um, that we already had covered, just to to really uh, set the, the stage, so to speak, um, for what's coming here. Verse 15 reads, As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped, and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Now recall that God had told him to go to the camp of Midian and to listen, and he overheard two centuries talking, and the centuries we're telling about a dream that they interpreted as 
Gideon and the armies of Israel as instruments of Yahweh, the God of Israel, completely destroying them. Think, though, in our time of of looking at the account of Gideon's judgeship, how we've seen a marked change in Gideon. Initially, his faith is not strong. it's, It's weak. Perhaps it's almost non-existent at the beginning of the account. But we have to recall, we have to remember that he lives during a time when he's surrounded by apostasy. It's everywhere, not much different from our time. And of course, we know faith is not a product of human willpower. It's not that Gideon is is, uh, weak of character because he doesn't have faith in God. Faith is source comes from the Lord. It involves trust in and obedience to God. So the beginning of Gideon's account is a remarkable demonstration of how the Lord gives faith to Gideon and how Gideon responds. And we see hesitancy in his response initially. And I think we should, because we certainly can, identify with this hesitancy. And when I read my Bible... I always try to identify with the characters that are really struggling or that are not doing good at all because, honestly, that's where I usually am. I, I'm, I, I, I am blessed when I read that the great heroes of the Bible struggle like I do, that they have moments of weakness like I do, that they have moments of doubt They struggle in their faith, as I do. And I know you guys do too. I mean, I say I, because I don't want to, I'm not standing up here as someone superior to you in my Christian life. I face the same things that you all face. We can identify with that. We're brothers and sisters in this. We all at some point, like Gideon, must learn to trust in the Lord. And proof of Gideon's new faith, his trust in the Lord is evident in his obedience to God. That's how we know we have faith, when we are obedient to him. And in verse 15 again, we read, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. When Gideon overhears the Midianite sentry speaking his name as the means by which God will defeat them, his faith is strengthened. Gideon's response to hearing his name spoken of in this awestruck manner is not to have an inflated ego or an increased sense of self-worth. No. It's bowing down to the author of the coming victory. Gideon immediately worships the Lord. Gideon has a lesson for us here. And that's my first point. Worship the Lord in everything. Worship the Lord in everything. That's so easy to say. But it's difficult to do. Doing this is an acknowledgement that our Lord is the author of our lives. He's the source of every blessing in our lives. 
But he's also the source of the trials and difficulties we must face in the present age we live in. Our, our hard times is not when God has lost control. We have to remember that. And I, and I know that, that you know that. Well, then why should we worship the Lord in everything? Well, first of all, it is God's due. It is our first duty towards him. He's deserving of our worship because he is all holy. He's all wise. He's almighty. He's the infinite, the all-perfect one. And our rightful attitude toward him should be of bowing down before him. It's been well said that in prayer, we are occupied with our needs. In thanksgiving, we are occupied with our blessings. But in worship, we are occupied with God himself. Also a reason why we're to worship the Lord in everything. He instructs us to do this. Think of the first table of the, of the law. The first four of the Ten Commandments instruct us that this is our proper response and required response to the Lord's steadfast love, said in Hebrew. This is the least that we can do, and it is what we should do. It's odd that it's the least, but it's not a, but it's not a small thing, right? It's the least, and it's the most, and it's everything. Well, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman at the well at Sakar in, in the fourth chapter of John, he tells her, but the hour is coming and is now here. So it was that hour was there. Then it is now as we live also when the true worshipers will worship, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Before this time, at the completion of Jesus' time of temptation in the wilderness, Jesus dismisses the adversary. He says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Worship and obedience combined. Moving on in Judges, verses 16 through 18, follow along as I read here. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon here is demonstrating true leadership. Here is this man of little or no faith that was seemed to be frightened of what was before him. And he is demonstrating real and true leadership. He's an example. If you were teaching a leadership class of how to do it, he tells his men, look at me and do likewise, do as I do. He does not send his men out while he remains behind. He leads them out. He is amongst them. He is an example to them. They are to look to him. So Gideon's example is a source of strength for his men who are facing a vastly superior enemy force. 
Remember, he started off with 32,000 warriors. And Yahweh, the Lord God, reduced his force purposely to 300 men so they would not boast of their victory. This example that Gideon gives, though, what's, what, what I think is striking about it is this also how the Lord works with his people. That's how the Lord works with us. It's how, what we see in the pages of Scripture. He was before them, leading them out of bondage in Egypt. And Jesus, during the time of his incarnation, led his band of disciples through Galilee, Judea, and Perea for three years. Jesus has promised us that he will be with us always. He assures us that he is with us when we gather in his name. And Jesus, like Gideon, provides an example that we are to emulate, that we are to conform to. Paul writes in Romans 8, 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So considering Gideon's instruction to his 300 and what they are to call out, this is not megalomania on Gideon's part. He's not equating himself with God when he commands them to shout for the Lord and Gideon. Note how he places the Lord first in what they're to shout, what they're to cry out. The Lord is first because the battle is the Lord's. Now, the name of Gideon is known to the Midianites and apparently feared by the Midianites from what he overheard the centuries say. So the use of his name is also part of the psyops here. It's Gideon. Oh, no. It's just like the Nazis with its patent. Patent's in East Anglia. He's coming to Calais. Uh Uh-oh. Move all the panzers up there. Judges 19a. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. Now before the Babylonian captivity, the Israelites divided the night into three watches. The first watch, the beginning of the watches, was from sunset to 10 p.m. And the second was called the middle watch. That was from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. And then the third, the last, was the morning watch. That was 2 a.m. to sunrise. So here... When Gideon sets his men, the first watch of the Midianites is going off duty, and the middle watch is just coming on duty. This is shift change in modern terminology. Shift change is always a time of vulnerability and reduced alertness. When you're changing sentries, when a police patrol force is changing watches, you know, um, you got you got guys that want to go off duty, and you got guys who are just trying to get ready to come on duty, and there's confusion, no one's really ready. It's a perfect time for something bad to happen. And the movement of these centuries changing watches would make it difficult for the Midianites to detect the movement of the Israelites who are surrounding them, because there's a lot of bustle going on in the Midianite camp. You know, wake Joe up, he overslept again, get him up here. You know, Charlie's got to go get chow and go to bed. And so, then what happens, we read on, verse 19b through 22, they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. 
Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerihah, as far as the, the border of Abel Meholah by Tabith. Sheer pandemonium erupts in the Midianite camp. Panic leads to confusion and misidentification in the dark with only the flickering torches as a source of illumination. The Midianites are fooled into thinking that the Israelites are among them, that they've attacked. So they cut and slash at any figure nearby in a frenzy of fear. In modern terms, this is blue on blue. This is friendly fire. They're caught in their own crossfires here. And the Midianites slaughter one another, which adds to the confusion. We are destroyed. We are doomed. Flee. Run for your lives. While the Israelites cry out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. (laughs) This is interesting. The sword is not an Israelite sword, is it? The Israelites aren't even carrying swords. The Lord uses the Midianite sword to defeat the Midianites. He turns their weapons against themselves. And this, this is such a cool thing. I just got to, I, I want us to remember this. When we think we're in dark times, when it's like, oh, it's never been this bad, it's horrible, we'll never get, we'll never get out of this in one piece. This is always the destiny of evil. Evil always self-destructs. Every single time. No exceptions. A house divided against itself. Evil is always a house divided against itself. Just like the Midianites who are, who are murdering each other and not realizing it. This is the essence of evil. Evil is never united for long. A mighty house of evil is always built upon the sand. This is what our Lord said, recorded in Matthew. And the rain, he said, and I add, from God, and the floods from God came, and the winds from God blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. There is a Marvelous promise in that when we face dark times, when we face evil, when we seem to be surrounded by evil. This is my second point. The enemies of God will not stand. The enemies of God will not stand. Every person, every ruler, every organization, every government, every kingdom both in this realm and the spiritual realm that opposes the Lord Almighty comes to destruction. Paul, writing to the Romans in chapter 14, he cites a verse from Isaiah chapter 43, 
which reads, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Paul writes of this again in Philippians and he, and he expands upon, he explains to us something very important for the, for the Christian here. Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, he writes, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Very clear pointing towards the deity of Jesus as the Son of God. There's no exceptions to the bowing of the knee. All. Not just followers, not just those who have said, you know, Jesus is my Savior. Even to those now who curse the name of our Lord will bow their knee. Like Gideon in his 300, the only sword we are required to take up is the sword of the Lord because the battle belongs to the Lord. Yet we do have a role to play, just like Gideon and his men, and that is to proclaim the name of the Lord to those who stand in opposition to him. This means declaring his power and glory over all persons and things. Like Gideon and his 300, we are to smash the jars that cover the light of God's gospel, of Christ's gospel. Think of the those who work to bring God's word into areas in the world where it is forbidden, where the light of Christ is not supposed to shine. Well, the light of Christ shall shine everywhere. Those who bravely take the Bible into places like China, communist China, into North Korea, into parts of Africa, in parts of the Middle East, are smashing that jar that's hiding the light. And when we support them in our prayers, and maybe if we can monetarily, we are working also to make sure that light shines. Christ said, Luke recorded in in chapter 8 of his gospel, no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Now we know, and we see it in this account of Gideon's battle, God's enemies flee from the light, from the light of the gospel, from the light of Gideon's torches. But God's people We're drawn to that light. That's a marvelous thing. Each of God's people, in his or her own time that God has decreed, is drawn towards that light. Some seem to be drawn very quickly. Others run from the light for a long time until the light finally draws them in in an irresistible manner. So God does not command us to physically strike down his enemies, just like he did not have the 300 strike down the Midianites physically. (laughs) If that was the case, not one of us would be standing right now. We would have been struck down. Thank the Lord for that. 
It is through us, Christ's church, that God pursues his wayward sheep. Can there be anything more wonderful than a bitter enemy being embraced as a brother? Can there be anything more wonderful than a lost son being brought back to his father? Each of us who have been saved by Christ knows what it's like to be that bitter enemy and that lost son. That was us. But by the grace of God, no longer. This leads to my third point today. Our actions must be verified by the word of God. Our actions must be verified by the word of God. I'm talking about our wishes and our opinions versus the word of God. What if Gideon had trusted in himself and his original force of 32,000 men? What would have been the outcome? How would have they fared against Midianite and the, Midian and its allies, which were, which were termed to be innumerable without ca- counting? I don't think they would have done very well at all. I think Israel would have been defeated, and decisively so. But Gideon took his direction from the Lord. Even though the text here, with this, with this subterfuge it goes on, does not tell us that the stratagem was given step by step by God, remember that Gideon had this plan when he returned from overhearing the sentries, that this was planted in his mind after he recognized their fear that he only knew because the Lord led him to that place. God directed him to the camp in order to overhear that conversation. It was the word of God in action then with Gideon. This formed the basis of Gideon's strategy. But a word of caution for us to accept as the word of God any impression, impulse, vision, or dream or private interpretation of scripture is not proof of strong faith as some mistakenly believe. No, um, uh, Henry Spence in his commentary on Judges says, rather it is evidence of a weak, rash, and gullible mind. We must be careful. We must not accept anything as the word of God upon insufficient evidence. To do so opens us up to every passing fancy We must take all due care and caution in verifying the word of God. This means prayerful, diligent study of scripture. For we know, when we know the requirements and meaning of of God's word, those of true faith will obey it. No matter what others or our own interests demand that we do otherwise. Spence goes on to say, Faith rests upon the perfect goodness and infinite power of God. So therefore, when we know with certainty what God commands us to do or not do, we can be certain that it is really for our own good to be obedient, however much we may feel inclined or pressured to go another way. Just very quickly, point four. The battle belongs to the Lord. 
the battle belongs to the Lord. Gideon's strategy is one of the marvels of ancient history. But the banner under which the victory was gained was not Gideon's. No, it was the Lord's. How the enemies of God are dealt with is divinely directed. This does not spring from human wisdom, nor is it dependent upon material advantage. There was a bishop in the early church, one of the patriarch's fathers, um, Theodoret, in the early 5th century, he wrote of this. And he said, Gideon overcame Midian with unarmed soldiers bearing only trumpets, torches, and pitchers. So Christ overcame the world by unarmed apostles bearing the trumpet of preaching and the torch of miracles. There is a world religion that conquers by the sword, but that is not Christianity. No. We only take up the sword of the Spirit, the word of the Lord. So in this idea that the battle is the Lord, there's some, there's some sub-points that I want to, some principles I want to bring out. Um, Quick and intelligent advantage is to be taken of the opportunities presented to us. So basically what I'm saying, what worked at one time is not going to work at another. What worked for Gideon at this point would have been disastrous at another time. God had provided the knowledge Gideon needed for success at that exact moment in time. If Gideon would have wiffle-waffled, if he would have been caught in, you know, in a bunch of doubt and questioning and dithered about, all would have been lost. But Gideon has become a faithful man of God, for a time at least, and he's responding as the Lord leads him. Another principle, in our Christian life, knowledge of people is immensely important. Our approach to others requires tact and an understanding of how and when to use the capabilities of the means of grace given to the church by the Lord. It's like the, the, one of the, the popular memes on social media amongst, you know, reform folks, especially younger ones, is, is, the, is the cage Calvinist, you know, the one who's ready to fight no holds barred in the MMA um, cage. And that, that, is, that is how they refer to uh, young people, especially young men, who have recently come to the doctrines of grace, that they're, they're ready to fight anybody, you know, over this. And then they mature and they learn that tact is important. <laughs> Winning an argument isn't our goal in life. It's to be obedient to our Lord and to let his light shine through us. We have to understand how and, well, I already said that, but here's a good quote, again from Henry Spence. He says, the power of Christian truth can never be overrated. Very true. Cannot be overrated, but it can be misapplied. It's a powerful thing. It's a powerful tool. So unity and cooperation also, this is what we see among Gideon's men, unity and cooperation amongst God's servants should be our way whenever possible. 
the PSYOP by the army of Israel, why did it work? It only worked because all of the warriors performed their tasks together as Gideon led them. If one company had smashed their jars while another blew its trumpet, while the third cried out, the desired effect would have been lost. Each company's efforts would have been wasted, and undoubtedly, they would have been defeated. So Gideon and his men did not function as independent fighters. They were unified in a body and worked in concert with one another. This can be a difficult thing for us. We are so independently minded, we Americans. But we are commanded by the Lord to assemble as a body, right? For it is in the body of Christ that we are trained and equipped to go forth into the world and make disciples. We're not to operate independently in the sense that we deliver a different message of our own choosing or employ a different means of grace springing from our own human imagination. And we all have seen or know of some really wacky things that that occur in some churches. We see it happening time and time again. People are seeking to reinvent the church, to make it, as they say, relevant to today's changing world, to make it, as they say, more welcoming and inclusive for those who demand to remain in their sin. The clear implication of these people who want to do these things, these reinventions and making more relevant, is that they know better. They know better than God. We should trust them, they're saying, and not God's word. Well, this is an old problem that's been in the church since its inception. It rises out of sin and the desire to be God that we see in the book of Genesis. The church as we know, departed from its biblical roots under the influence of Rome, and man-centered worship and practices prevailed, and it required a great reformation to correct these man-centered and evil practices. So what, these are four, there's four things I want you to take away from today. There There were so many things in this pericope that we've been dealing with, this little episode, and it's like, I could go on and on, and I need to wrap this up. First, undertake nothing in our own strength. We do not possess the power or the wisdom in and of ourselves. The Christian life is completely dependent on God. When we recognize this, then it is that our prayer and worship become really joyful and fulfilling, rather than a chore or a task that we are required to do. The focus then of our lives becomes centered on the Lord and we begin to actually realize the abundancy of life which he has promised to his people. Second thing, do not assume the glory which rightfully belongs to the Lord. Peter in his first epistle, he says, he's quoting from Deuteronomy here, all flesh is like grass and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Human glory always, always ends in a funeral. Every great person that has ever lived, every mighty king that has ever ruled, every founder 
of every religion lies dead in a tomb, except for one. There is only one empty tomb, once occupied by a dead man who raised himself to life, and to him alone belongs the glory. We are to draw back from nothing to which we are called. Each of us is called for a purpose and to a purpose. We have been called to Christ. It is in Christ that we have our purpose. And it becomes clear that apart from Christ, life is ultimately purposeless. You may not be called to do great things from a worldly perspective, but you will be called to do hard things and prepare yourself for these hard things by reading God's word, by worshiping the Lord along with his other saints, by fellowshipping with your brothers and sisters in Christ and set your mind for the hard things. Count it as joy that you were so loved by the Lord that he has chosen you to follow after him. The way is not easy, but it, but it is worth it. And lastly, doubt of nothing which God has promised. Our Lord is ever faithful. Every single thing that God has promised to his people in times past has come true at its appointed time in history. How do I know what God's promises are to me, you ask? Read your Bible, I say. I know all of you have had promises made to you that have been broken. Maybe more promises have been broken than have been kept. You've been hurt, and you find it hard to trust promises. When the Lord Jesus encountered broken human hearts, he wept. Heartbreak and grief are not in the future that the Lord has obtained for us. Give your heart of stone to the Savior who died on the cross for you and he will give you back a heart of flesh. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the lessons that you have for us. There are so many and they are so powerful. Father, may they be in our hearts and in our minds. We may, may we mold mull them over. May we meditate on them. May we see the application to what we live through day by day. Father, bless my brothers and my sisters here that have heard this word. Bless those who have heard on sermon audio, Father. Guide them, lead them, fill them with the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that this day we remain focused on you, that we glorify you, in our luncheon that is to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.